And please open in your scriptures to the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. If you're joining us via the stream and you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there is a link there in the frame entitled Bible Gateway. You can click onto that, Bible Gateway, and there's a search engine then once you open that app and you can type in John, the name John, the number 21. I'm going to be reading in just a moment. Most of chapter 21. And for those of you that are here, um, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 in a message I've entitled, Christ Restoring Love. The building we are sitting in, 282 Summer Street, what is known as now Crossway Church's home, was actually... The cornerstone of this building, if my history uh, is correct, was uh, celebrated um, after the parsonage next door was completed. That's a residence. Uh, They placed the cornerstone of this building, I believe, in 1969. Uh, It was a Baptist uh, church then, and uh, they had planted from another community Uh, what would later become known, I believe, as the Calvary Baptist Temple. Uh, If you were to go on our Facebook page, uh, if it's still there, when we dedicated our occupancy and and restoration of this property, then there was actual film taken of the dedication ceremony. One of the members of that church lives in Mansfield, and he shared it with us, and we shared it with the congregation then. And so you're sitting in a building that, whose shell was built almost 40, 50 years ago. By shell, I literally mean the structure alone. No windows. Uh, The doors were not finished. They were boarded. Uh, This is the original, right, woodwork that was in then it was when we purchased it in 2009 or so it was uh, stained with mold um, and uh, there had been a fire um, and what appeared to be an earthquake because the entire uh, exit stairwell here was gone and there was a hole Um, the um, the the floor joists if that's what you call them that support the chairs that you're on, uh, they're the original beams of wood. They're 12 inches thick. Uh, it's a hard wood. I'm not sure what type of wood it was. It was, it was dark brown. It, to me, it looked like redwood, but I'm sure it wasn't that. Uh, the plumbing, right? All the plumbing, the, the uh, steel or copper pipe, whatever is back there for the baptismal was original. The baptismal was there. They were Baptists, so probably shortly after the cornerstone was put in, they put in the baptismal. Um, But they never finished it. They never had either the means or the ministry itself was able to sustain itself to complete the project. Um, And so soon, right, the steeple that was on the building blew off. The woods that are so carefully manicured here and kept back, had all grown in, and so you had an empty church building with now boarded up windows. There was a fire at one point. I believe there was even a bike shop in here at one point, illegally. Um, I don't want to be sued for that, but it was illegal. Um, um, 
You had a bike shop in here, as the neighbors will tell us. Um, when we purchased it, we weren't building something new. We were restoring the building. We had to repair what was broken. We now have stairs, right? We the plumbing is working. The bathrooms work. We had to repair the bathrooms, new wiring. But much of what you see was here, new drywall, but much of the existing brickwork and support behind those walls was here. We restored it by repairing it so it would work again and it could be used. There's actually a song written about this building by friends of the church, When It Lie Empty. It's really a prayer and the song, which is also on the Facebook page, you'll have to look for a while, talks about this lonely little building that God's not finished with in Franklin. And one day, one day, it's going to be used by God. Again, it was written by a Christian. Well, the theme of restoration is just something that architects and builders and designers geek out over. It's the heart of the gospel. We see it from the earliest pages of Genesis to the final chapter of John's gospel. And so as we look at Christ's restoring love today, I want you to consider how has Jesus revealed to you his restoring love? And what events from your past and heartaches in your present do you long for more of his restoring love to be revealed? John chapter 21. This is God's word. After this, Jesus, note this, revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It's Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15, when, Jesus, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, that is, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for true stories such as this that are not merely tagged on as an isolated incident, but capture albeit for the last time in this gospel, the miraculous work of restoration you do, have done, and will continue to do in the hearts of those who continue to believe that Jesus is alive. The details of our story will differ, Lord, but our need for the risen Christ is the same today. And so we invite you to come to us again with tenderness, kindness, and compassion as we turn to you in faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I'm apt to do when I get excited about a story, we purchased this building in 2009, and by God's grace and through 
a lot of prayer and sacrificial giving and sweat and some tears. We finished the building, I believe, in a year or two. And our first Sunday in this building was on Palm Sunday in, I believe, 2011. It's the first week that we had chairs we could sit in that met the fire, stringent fire code of Franklin. And they are stringent. And, um, and then Easter Sunday was really our celebration Sunday. Praise be to God for his faithfulness. So, repair something so that it can work again. That's my simple definition from the dictionary of Linda Evans under the word restoration. Furniture, grandmother's quilts, buildings, people, you, and me too. The finale of the fourth gospel is more than the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus accompanied by a miraculous catch of fish, though those two things did happen. They're true, they're real. But it is the story of how Jesus comes to us when we turn to him. And he brings into our stories of failures, our own and those of others, fears, burdens and weaknesses, brokenness and stuckness, heartache and longings. He reveals himself to us in those spaces that we might be restored and refocused as his disciples. And that's my main point this morning. I believe that the second Sunday after Easter is as important as the first Sunday after Easter because Jesus is continuing as the resurrected Christ to minister to disciples, to believers, and calling non-believers to himself to restore them when they fail, when we turn to him in faith. And Peter will be our case study but certainly the other disciples get in on this too. First point this morning, the revelation of Jesus. I bet you saw, because you're careful readers, that the word revealed was repeated three times in this chapter. Verse one, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Verse three again, You see the word revealed, and then in verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I consulted Don Carson, a well-known commentator and reputable scholar, and John is intentional. He doesn't use the word appearance. He uses the word revealed. It's a different word in the Greek. It means that, yes, he appeared to them, but he appeared to them with the intent 
of revealing something to them. The details of this story really matter. And if we read through it, as I often do, in a hurried fashion, we miss it. And we focus on the wrong thing, as I often do. And yet, because we'll go slow enough to identify some of these details, we're going to read and discover that the heart of the resurrected Christ remains deeply committed to restoring you and me, not only in our present where we feel we may have failed, but in our past where we did fail. And in our future where we don't know all that will occur, we may be tested and tried to turn away. It's an extremely encouraging account in the gospel. So let's consider it together. His third appearance, and may the Lord by his grace focus your and my attention on the resurrected Christ and how he responds to the disciples and to us after he has revealed himself to them. It says that after this, well, it's eight days based on the larger context after Easter Sunday. And we know that from what we read in chapter 20. Eight days, at least eight days. It may, be, it may be longer, two weeks. And it says that the disciples are now in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias, right? They're no longer in a room of locked doors in Jerusalem. They're home. It's an 85-mile journey to these shores. So they, it, it, it took some time to get there, yes? I mean, I walk briskly, and the best I can do in about six hours is 10 miles, if that, if it's flat. So 85 miles, long journey. And they traveled it. Seven of them did. Their names are listed there. Isn't it interesting? Simon Peter's mentioned first by John. Thomas is there, doubting Thomas, also called the twin. The sons of Zebedee, that's John, his brother James, and Nathaniel of Cana. They're home. They're in Galilee. This is where Jesus first called many of them into ministry as fishermen. And it says that there, there he meets them, verse 4, as day was breaking. But verse 3 says they had caught nothing. Let me just acknowledge this. Perhaps their being in Galilee is fulfillment of what Jesus said in the upper room to them the last night in that long extended discourse we have in John where he says in chapter 16 verse 32 do you now believe behold the hour is coming indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home verse 32 and will leave me alone yet I am not alone for my father is with me perhaps that's why they are in Galilee for they had left him 
It is interesting that they went fishing in the night, right? When we did John's gospel several years ago, we noticed that the gospel opens with this proclamation that a great light is now showing in the person of Christ. And night in the gospel of John almost always is symbolic not only of its nighttime and it's dark outside, but spiritual darkness, the absence of spiritual light. So Nicodemus, despite the favorable depiction of him in The Chosen, which I enjoy that, although I struggled with his depiction of Nicodemus, that's just me, he came to Jesus in the night. Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus said to him at night, do what you have to do. The women showed up at the tomb in the night. In John, it's almost always symbolic of spiritual darkness. So they're in Galilee, and Peter says to them, let's go fishing at night. Now, yeah, I don't fish. Maybe you're going to tell me over coffee. That's the best time to fish. The fish are jumping practically into the nets at night. That's fair. But in John's gospel not your fishing experience, he uses night to mean two things. And maybe that's why they're fishing. They're fishing perhaps because Peter, who's leading them, he says to them, I'm going fishing. And the six disciples say, I will go with you. They're fishing perhaps because their hearts have sunk into despair. They're fishing again because perhaps they are ambivalent at the commission he gave them when prior to having Thomas touch his, hand, his side and his hands, he breathed on them. Remember that scene? That was an odd scene. He breathed on them and said, receive my peace. And then he commissioned them to go. And so they went fishing. He's calling them the mission and they're going fishing. I love fishermen. Don't hear what I'm not saying. And it's Jesus who reveals himself to them there on the shores of Galilee while they're fishing. I love the words of the song we do in this church from time to time. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to me. That hymn writer knew what it was to have Jesus come to him when he was not seeking first Christ's kingdom. In fact, if this is a low moment for the disciples, and I believe it is, that's my argument, Jesus is seeking them out at their lowest moments, not just their high moments, not just when they're baptized and they declare publicly, I'm all in for King Jesus. Not just at the concert, right? What a concert it was. 
three worship bands and we lifted the roof and everybody's hands were up and it was like the kingdom. Not just then does Jesus come. Not just at youth camp on the final night when the call is given and the invitation comes and all the youth move forward. Not just then this, Jesus comes to us at our lowest moments. Amen? Because he, he is the God who restores the joy of our salvation. At least that's what David said in his most famous psalm, Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Cleanse me. Blot out my sins. And give me a willing spirit. The revelation of Jesus to his disciples is good news for us. For it declares that he remains committed to revealing self to his people, not just when they are seeking to walk closely with him, but oftentimes, especially when they are not. He knows our frame, he remembers we are dust, he knows we like to wander, he knows in and of ourselves. We are going to make terrible choices and be paralyzed and discouraged and not be able to bring ourselves up. Our faith in Jesus is absolutely dependent on the revelation of Christ to us in the lowest moments. He has the authority to command us, no question, but his command and authority is tempered by his compassion his love and his mercy for his disciples. He is a gentle savior, revealing himself to us in those moments when we are faltering, when we are floundering, when we may even be failing. I think one of the most difficult moments in my Christian life is and remains to be when I falter, when I fail. And I'm not talking about because I'm on the payroll. I'm talking about as a disciple. And there's some sin that I'm becoming aware of. And it paralyzes me. Oh, not that one again. I got disappointing news this past Monday. I built my family up to expect exciting news. But I got disappointing news. And I didn't realize until I got the disappointing news. And I was telling Linda on Tuesday. How much prestige matters to me? I didn't think it did. I thought I was on the Lord's business. And then I didn't get what I thought I deserved and earned. And do you ever have that moment where like just the air gets let out of your tire of a desire, a little dream. And you don't even want to get on the bike anymore. You want to just put the bike away and say, I'm not going to. Difficult moments in parenting. When the children that you sowed faithfully in modeled what you thought was authentic Christianity prayed 
even fasted, lost weight in praying for them, took them here, exposed them to this there. And as they get older, their hearts have gotten colder. And the conversations that once seemed so easy to have about Jesus become more painful. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about what goes on in your heart in that moment. You know what goes on in mine? I want to go fishing. Not really. I hate fishing. But I want to do something I'm good at so I don't have to think about this anymore. Oh, I believe in the resurrection. But then confronted with my need for it and the hope that it gives in that reality, I become wobbly. That's just me. But I find in the pages seven men who for three and a half years have been with him. Three and a half years have witnessed his miracles. Three and a half years have sat under his teaching. There's nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. There's nothing about his charisma that convinced them he's the Messiah. It was revealed to them, albeit partially, it was a veiled disclosure, but it was revealed to them and ultimately culminated, they witnessed his crucifixion and resurrection. And eight days later, they're faltering. They're floundering. They're failing in their mission. They've been commissioned and they're failing. I am so glad John has a chapter 21 because it gives hope to me and to any of you who with Peter can say this morning, Lord, I need a fresh revelation of your restoring power. The applications are so many, but I'm going to keep going. Second point, the restoring of Peter. This is so, I think John must have a sense of humor. I think he's painting Peter in a humorous light. Because it says in verse 4 that his day was breaking. Jesus is standing on the shore. The disciples do not recognize him. He calls out again, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You're going to find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple John says, it's the Lord. Because when he called them in Matthew 3 and Mark 1, there was a miraculous catch of fish. And he said following that, Come follow me. And Peter, who is stripped down, it says, I'm assuming he's wearing a Speedo, the Galilean equivalent of a Speedo. It says he's stripped down, he clothes himself, and jumps in the water. Is that what you do when you go swimming? You put on your warm-ups, you put on your sweater, you put on your, your jacket, and you jump in the water. I mean, maybe I guess if we're doing that polar bear thing, right? In Boston, don't they do that? 
Peter, who's stripped for work, clothes himself and jumps into the water. That's an important detail. Why is Peter swimming with all this clothing on? Is there another instance in Scripture when people who come into the presence of God, knowing they're guilty, clothe themselves? It's the Garden of Eden all over again. He's ashamed. He's denied him. Three times he's denied him after professing he would be the most loyal. His conscience is not only guilty, it is, it is racked with the reality of, Lord, I failed you in your moment of greatest need. I think it's John, one of the gospel writers records that when, Jesus, when Peter denied him for the third time, somehow in the mystery of that night with that trial, Peter and Jesus' eyes met. Can you imagine, can you imagine for Peter the guilt and the shame and the humiliation that he denied knowing Jesus, denied knowing the Galilean, to a servant girl, to a stranger. I can. I can. Every time I'm asked, what'd you do Sunday? And I don't say first thing, I went to church with the people of God and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I dodge that regularly even though they know I'm a pastor and they probably know I'm there. Opportunity to share the gospel. And I share some of it, the happy part of it, but don't tell them the bad news part of it. That apart from faith and repentance for sins, there's only judgment. So receive Jesus, your loving Savior. I, 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 whatever that is, qualify it. I think one of the lessons here, as we watch what's taking place there on the beach, as the disciples bring the fish onto the shore, and with a charcoal fire in place, they bring some of the fish, verse 11, and Jesus feeds them breakfast. One of the lessons here is that Jesus is committed in his slow work of restoration to refreshing fallen disciples. He feeds them. He gives them a meal. They've been out all night. He feeds them. He refreshes them. He, he allows them to enjoy a meal together with him present. But then, as the focus shifts in verses 7 and 8 to Simon Peter, and the work of restoration now is full bore, Peter having fallen down before the Lord, ashamed of denying Christ, says to him, Lord, Lord, Peter who is meeting the risen Christ, 
not fully restored. Does the light bulb go off that the last time he was sitting before a charcoal fire was the night he betrayed Jesus in the high priest's courtyard? Do the dots start to connect that when you called me to follow you, there was a miraculous catch of fish. And then now on the beaches of Galilee, you're refreshing me with breakfast before a charcoal fire, which can't but hearken back to the night I denied you before another charcoal fire. There's only two. There's only two. In the Gospel of John, this one and that one. What's Jesus doing? Why is he rehearsing his calling when he first followed him three years ago and his moral failure when he denied him? I think he's saying to Peter, I know what happened, I know what is burdening you. I know why you have clothed yourself to cover your shame. It's not enough to fix the wall that you see is broken. If the wall is broken down deep, you have to see what's wrong in the foundation and fix what is wrong in the foundation. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking Peter back to the moment when he denied him. He's going down deep in a real sense. He's taking him all the way back to his calling and then his denial. So that when he asks them those famous questions that many of us have heard, having had the meal together, beginning in verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The risen Christ appearing to Jesus is doing the slow work of restoring Jesus, Peter's faith in him. So that the threefold denial of his allegiance to him would now be, if you will, supplanted by the threefold recommissioning of Peter to tend and feed and shepherd sacrificially the friendship of God the people of God. Sinclair Ferguson writing on this section says, we all need to understand that repentance for restoration always involves the painful process of getting back to where you started with the Lord Jesus. It can be very sore and it's slow, but you know when the Lord Jesus restores you, you wouldn't have it any other way. You wouldn't want a quick fix. You wouldn't want him to be slowly you would want him to be the slowly burning savior, making sure he's going deep enough, doing deep-seated work in your life to make a permanent change in you. I want that. 
I hope you want that. I hope you believe the Lord Jesus is still doing that. No matter how far you or someone we love has fallen, no matter how far you or someone we care for has failed, the beginnings of grace begin with Christ gently but clearly convicting us and reminding us of the pain of failing him. We hear Peter's frustration, but if he is going to be useful and fruitful, he is going to have to submit to the Lord's slow but painful process of restoration by having his heart restored, here it is, and I wrap up with this, to loving Christ first and not what Christ can do for you. He's restoring for Peter a heart that loves Christ, period, full stop. Not what Christ will do. So that this relationship will not be a legal relationship where we try to score points with God by doing things for him. No points are scored before God. Any true service is rooted in a heart that's so transformed by him loves Christ more. But secondly, perhaps the equally important, if he is going to feed God's people and tend his sheep and lead sacrificially, lead God's people, Peter, it will be painful. It will be costly. Jesus speaks to him in verse 18 of his death. And in metaphoric terms, we don't have time to read the passage, but in talking about Peter's death, he, he knew that what Jesus was saying is that this was going to be a costly ministry. Friends, the Christian life, you know this, is costly, it's hard. It's joyful, it's purpose renewing, it's hopeful, it's painful, it's costly, it's difficult. And almost instantly, Peter is distracted by the other disciple, John, when Jesus says of him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, he's distracted by the comparison, my life's hard, but this other Christian I know, it appears his life is easy. My life is going to be difficult, but it appears this other Christian I know is experiencing victory. My life has been disappointing, but it appears this other Christian seems to be succeeding. Lord, how is that? And don't you love the Lord's gentle but firm response? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. He's refocusing Peter, isn't he? having restored his heart, that the call to love him and the sacrificial leadership needed to serve him will mean he will have to follow him alone. In every church today that professes Jesus Christ and stands upon the truths of scripture, large and small, and heralds unapologetically the gospel, the risen Christ, 
is present. And he is saying through his presence, I know your weak frame, and I'm saying this to myself. I have come to restore you and repair what is broken in you and refocus you, even when you fail. We all have stories. Like this building once had a story of failure and fear, burdens and weaknesses, brokenness and stuckness, heartache and longings. Christ comes to us that we might turn to him, that we might experience new mercies, fresh grace, renewed joys, doubts diminish, hope floods our heart again as we turn to the risen Christ by faith and with Peter worship him again. How has Jesus, friends, revealed his restoring love in your life? What events from your past or heartaches in your presence do you long for more of him? Where might I be tempted, where might you be tempted to turn from his call to follow him in life and relationships and ministry or mission and go fishing again? Do you ever find yourself comparing yourself to other Christians, doubting his plan for your life? Do you believe Christ's sacrifice is the only sacrifice you need as you continue to look to him for new mercies and strength for today? I'm thankful. I'm thankful that John chapter 21 isn't the last chapter in the Bible. There's another day of restoration coming, isn't there? Some of us will see it sooner than others. That's heaven. But all of us will see it one day when the Lord restores a new heaven and a new earth for the joy, for the joy of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we say with John that the appearance of Christ on the shores of Galilee reveals a resurrected Savior who is deeply committed to restoring us, even when we fail. And so now we choose to turn to you by faith. And we pray, Lord, we pray that you would reveal your goodness to us again today where we are tempted not to follow you, where, we, where doubts may crowd in and, and cause us to wander from you, where we long for more of you, and yet, Lord, our heart aches as we wait. We pray, Lord, that you would even now fill us with the truths of this passage and the reality of the risen Christ. And we say, Lord, as a final benediction on this message, that we, we agree with the apostle who says, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So, Lord, all the more, 
Give us the grace you gave to Peter to persevere in our suffering, to endure in faithfulness, and to live for your glory as we follow you every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand.